There is no greater reminder that we need than that right there. That God really loves us. No matter what is an unconditional love. I hope that you know that today. I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles. Join me in Ephesians chapter 2. We are already done with chapter 1 in the study of this book, this wonderful epistle called Ephesians uh, that we are studying. And uh, we looked in chapter 1 when we started just a few weeks ago. We have explored uh, already the depths of, of this letter, which is called the Grand Canyon of the New Testament. If, if Romans is the Himalayas, this is the Grand Canyon because of the depth, the wealth of the riches. And Paul already dived into that with us right off the bat in chapter 1, telling us about the, the benefits, the blessings that the Father has bestowed upon the believer. And then last week, as we continued in chapter 1, he shares with the Ephesian believers a prayer that he has made them a consistent part of his prayer regimen. He is going to the throne on their behalf to ask the Lord, in light of all these blessings that you've given them, God, take them forward. Do something new in them. And uh, that prayer was for the Ephesians, but by default, it's for all believers that God would do this in us. And now today, as we enter chapter 2, Paul is going to take all of this and put it in perspective. He's going to give us a frame of reference. It's been said that the more mature a believer grows in his or her walk with Jesus Christ, the more aware they are of what it is they've been saved out of. That they are, they are aware of the starkness of their situation before Christ. The more they draw near to Jesus, they see the depth and the depravity of what they were. Now that is not to say that they carry around guilt from that old life because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? You don't wear that guilt. You don't carry that. But there is a sense of gratitude because of the depth from which he pulled you. There's an acknowledgement of that. The closer you get to the light, the more you have an awareness of your humanity. When I was in college back in the 90s, I went to Liberty University just a couple hours north from here in Virginia. I, at that time, was staying in what was then uh, among the newest and nicest dorms on campus. Now, that dorm that I lived in is still standing. It is no longer among the newest and nicest on campus. That's how long I've been out of school. But at the time, it was some pretty sweet digs if you were a college student. Uh, it was called the senior dorms on each floor. There were four uh, compartments. We called them quads because there were four of them. And in each quad, you had five rooms. And in each room, there were two guys. You had 10 guys to a quad. There was a hallway that went down. We shared a couple of large bathrooms. And then in the front, there's kind of a common area with a TV and sofa and some chairs, coffee table, kitchen area, stove, microwave, fridge, kind of standard stuff on that campus today. But back then, this, is, this was the place to be. That said, it's still a guy's college dorm. And so the walls were that typical eggshell white, just kind of dull and drab. And uh, it was a dorm, you know, and, and, and breaks would come along, fall break, spring break. The guys would kind of scatter. Uh, a lot of them lived in state. Some of them lived down here in the Carolinas or where have you. I was not from this area. I, my family was back in South Dakota. They could not afford to fly me home multiple times a year. I went home for Christmas. I went home in the summertime. That's it. So when a break would come, I'd have to go home with a buddy or I would just stay on campus, and I'd be in that dorm alone. Well, one such break came along, and I was alone, and I'm trying to keep myself from slipping into a coma due to boredom, and I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm looking around, and I'm noticing these drab, eggshell white walls, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, the guys are coming back in a couple of days. It'd be cool if I could do something. Spruce this place up, you know? What should I do? And I had an idea. Aha! I'll paint the quad. I'm going to paint the quad. Now, had I ever painted anything in my life? Uh, no, the answer is no, I had not. How hard could it be? You know? And so I walked to Walmart. In those days, you could walk out the back exit of the campus. You could go over the railroad tracks, down the hill, and you were in Wally World. And so I go into Walmart, and I go up to the paint counter, and I say, Good sir, I would like a bucket of paint. And he said, What color? I said, that's a good question. What you got? And he showed me a book, and I'm looking at these colors, and I, I see a color. And I say, well, that's it. 
executive blue. And I thought, oh, man, look at that. That is now that is blue right there. That is downright regal. That's the one. I'll take one of those. He goes, just one? I go, yeah, yeah, I'll just, I'll just take a gallon. He goes, are you sure? I said, oh, I can make that work. That's all I had money for, really. And so I ordered that. He goes, what about primer? I said, come again. <laughs> he goes, primer. Son, you need primer. You've got to put primer on the wall uh, because when you paint it, you don't want the color of the previous wall peeking through there. I said, ah, these are light-colored walls. It'll be fine. I'll just take the one gallon there, and I bought one gallon of executive blue, and I bought one roller. I don't even think I bought a tray. And so I walk back to campus, got my roller, got my paint. I come in the dorm. I'm excited. I pry the lid off that thing, and I get to rolling, man. I'm like, rolling, rolling, rolling. Keep the paint rolling. And I'm like, well, this is easy. I should have been doing this all along. You know, I could maybe make some money doing this, you know. And I'm, I'm painting away, and in no time, I used up every drop in that bucket, and I stretched it. I made it last. Now, I didn't make it all the way down the hall, but I covered the entire front commons area of the quad, and it was blue. And I stood back, and maybe I was a little hazy because of the fumes, but I thought I did a pretty good job. I'm looking at those walls, and I'm going, yeah, man, this looks all right. This looks pretty good. Guys are going to be really impressed. And I sat on the sofa and I waited for them to come home. And one by one, they came in, they dropped their bag. They said, hey, Scott, how's it? Oh, my goodness. You've been busy. You, you painted. I'm like, I know. And so they all eventually congregated there in the commons. And we just kind of beheld my handiwork. And the general consensus was they liked it. They said, yeah, you know, this is different. This is, this is nice for a change. And then one guy said, but you know, it's dark. It's kind of dark in here. You know, it used to be kind of bright, and now it's, now it's kind of dark. You know, maybe we could brighten the place up a little bit, not, not have it be so oppressive. And one of the guys said, well, I got, a, I got a floor lamp in my room. And so he went and got the floor lamp, brought it out, set it next to the wall, plugged it in, turned it on, and the light washed across the wall. And all of a sudden, you could see all my mistakes. You could see all the streaks, all the drips. You could see all the places where I'd missed a spot. There, 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 there. All these little diamonds of eggshell white just peeking through saying, how you doing? All the drips on the carpet. All the places where I'd bumped the ceiling with the roller, you know. The light had exposed all of my deficiencies as a painter. Folks, in the Christian life, the closer you get to Jesus, who is the light, he reveals all the flaws of your humanity. You become aware of the imperfections of your flesh by comparison to the perfection of who he is. And so Paul is going to give us a frame of reference today. He's going to show us the way we were. And he's also going to show us the way we are. And that's what we're going to look at. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I pray your blessing upon our time and your word today. May you just anoint our reading of it, God. May you illuminate this so that we can find something uh, of which we can be confident, that we can apply, and so that we can think of ourselves rightly the way that you describe us in comparison to the standard who is Jesus. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. All right, let us take a look now as Paul starts off in verse 1 of Ephesians 2. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And so he's establishing something right off the bat, uh, right off the bat here. You were dead. I want you to write in all caps at the top of your notes, dead. Now let me just explain something. In the Greek, the Greek word for dead means dead. All right, I just want to clear that up. I know these things can be confusing, okay? It means that, what is a dead person like? Well, do me a favor. The next time you go to a funeral, just lean over that casket and say, rise, and see what happens. They're not going to rise. Why not? Is it because they're deaf? Is it because they didn't hear you? Are they rude? Are they insensitive? No, they're not going to rise because they're dead. Your prior sinful condition is not because you are insensitive to God. It's not because you are immature. It's because you were dead. You were dead. Now, you had the appearance of life, possibly. Uh, you could have been a moral 
or theological dead person, uh, you were you could have looked like you, you essentially you were a zombie. You looked alive, but you were dead. That's what zombies are. They have motion. They're animated, but they are a corpse. And so you you might have had the the appearance of someone moral or spiritual. You you may have said. You believed in God. You may have said you believed in Jesus. You probably said you believed the Bible. You probably had even some awareness of a doctrine like the Holy Spirit. But all of these things came from a 30,000 foot view. It was very generic. It was very vague. The world has no problem with a vague concept of God. That is very non-offensive. It doesn't rouse the dead to speak of God in a general sense. But you start getting specific. You start talking about the God of our Lord Jesus Christ who sent his son in the flesh, divinity made human so that he would live a perfect life, die in our place so that we who are unworthy could find atonement and forgiveness. That's an offensive message. The world doesn't like that. The world is just fine if we would just keep the gospel that God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. Can we just leave it at that? But you get specific, you know, and you will start offending people. When I was in high school at my graduation, uh, the school invited my father, who is a pastor, to come and, and do a prayer. We had an invocation. We had a benediction. They invited two ministers, my dad being one of them. The other guy was, you know, was a clergy, all right, which is, that describes me in a technical sense, but I don't prefer that term. Clergy kind of sounds a little ecumenical, a little uh, middle of the road for me, but that's what this guy was. He came from a more liturgical background. You know, I think he had a collar or some such. Very nice man. He was a clergy. He was a minister. My dad was a preacher. He was a preacher. So this first guy did the invocation at the graduation. Lord, we just pray for these students that they would find success, that they might shine. You know, that kind of a prayer. And everybody's, you know, amen, you know. My dad, at the end of the graduation, he's like, Lord, my prayer for every member of this graduating body is that one day they would put their faith in Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ, that they would acknowledge their sinful condition and find forgiveness by trusting in what you did at Calvary. I mean, you had the whole doctrine of the atonement in there, man. He was pray preaching. And I think they banned prayer at graduation the next year. Because he, he kind of got under people's skin. He was telling the truth. Paul is telling the truth. You were dead in trespasses, in sins. Verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world. So here you are. You're dead. But you're, you, you appear to have life. Why? Because there's something animating the zombie. What is it that is animating you? What is it that is controlling you? In verse 2, the first thing he says that controls you is the world, is the world. So in your notes, what we learn here is that we were part of a system of evil. Because that word world is the Greek word cosmos. Uh, we think of cosmos, universe, right? We're not simply talking about the physical universe. Every time world, cosmos, is used in the New Testament, it refers to the unrighteous, but more than that, it is the unrighteous that are part of a larger satanic system that is at work in the world. It is a shadow government to God's rule in this world. And it seems very religious, this system. But it is 100% opposed to Jehovah. It's got its own view of creation. It's got its own view of morality, of heaven, of hell, of judgment of man. It rejects the revelation of God. It is a satanic system and domain. And you and I were in accordance with that. Paul says we walked along the course of this world. That word course has the connotation of a path. You and I walked in our lostness on a path. What was this path like? It was a broad path. It was a wide, welcoming, inviting path. It was an easy path. And Jesus describes this path. In Matthew 7, he says, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. So we're just walking along because this is what you do. And the way of this path... The reason it's so easy is because if you just do and follow what the world says to do and follow, you won't have any problems. The world won't mess with you. You just do what we tell you to do. You just believe what we feed you. 
ideologically, philosophically. Now, if you deviate from the path, it's not going to be an easy life for you. Boy, is that true today? Man, we're all on this path, everybody's on this path, and we just we expect to stay on that path. But if you take a step off the path, you get canceled, man. You get rebuffed. You get crucified. Recently, in the world of sports, you've got this hockey player, Provorov, right? Philadelphia Flyers. There's a gay pride celebration thing. He's supposed to have a practice jersey with rainbow colors on it. The whole team's going to go out, skate, wearing the rainbow, you know, celebrate gay pride, trans rights, all this stuff. He says, no. I'm not going to do that. That goes against my faith. And so he's being, he's being lit up. People are saying the NHL needs to fine him into oblivion. You got Tony Dungy, man of faith, Hall of Fame, NFL coach, Super Bowl winning guy, goes to the March for Life, takes a stand for the unborn. People are calling for NBC to fire him. How dare he be so insensitive? You stay on the path of the world and the world doesn't mess with you. But the narrow way is what we are called to. And we, at one point, were all on the broad way. Thank God, God reached down as I walked that path. He tripped me up. He deviated my course, and I'm grateful for that. I hope he did that for you as well. But not only are we on this path, Paul says, he continues on, he says, we were following the prince of the power of the air. So you weren't just walking along on your own on this path. You were following somebody. Who were you following? You were following this individual, the prince of the power of the air. So not only were you part of a system of evil, but number two in your notes, you were servants of Satan. That's what we were. Whoa. (laughs) Servants of Satan? Really? Pastor Scott, uh, that's a little harsh. No, that's right. The prince of the power of the air. That is the name, that is a title, one of the titles for Satan. Air has the idea of an atmospheric region. This word power, we're going to see it again. We're going to get to Ephesians 6, and we're going to see it used alongside rulers, principalities, powers. What are those words in reference to? Demons. Those are terms for different ranks of demons. When we get to Ephesians 6, we're going to talk about the demonic realm. Some of you just woke up. You're like, wow, really? We're going to talk about that? Yes, we are. We're going to do a deep dive. Don't miss it. It's going to be interesting. But this is the prince of those powers, those demons. He is the Lord. He oversees a demonic realm. He's their prince. Notice, though, he ain't no king. He's certainly not the king. Amen? We know the king, but he's the prince of the power of the air. And you followed him, and so did I. You say, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not a Satanist, Pastor Scott. No, you were, you were worse than a Satanist. You were what the Bible calls a child of Satan. Does that sound harsh? Well, don't get mad at me. Jesus said it. He talked to the Pharisees. He said, you are of your father, the devil. How do you think that went over? <laughs> they got pretty mad about that. Uh, and uh, here, Paul says, you're following this this devil, this entity, prince of the power of the air. By the way, neither Paul nor Jesus coined this term. We saw this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Adam disobeys God. God said, don't eat from the tree. He ate from the tree. You've got the curse of sin has now fallen. God in his anger looks at the serpent, looks at Satan. He says, because you've done this, I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. Your seed and the seed of the woman. And when he talks about the seed of the woman, it's singular. One seed, capital S. Who is that? Christ. So there's going to be division, enmity between the offspring of Satan. Satan has offspring? I didn't even know that guy was married. He has offspring. And they are at enmity with Christ. And guess who his offspring are? Every person that follows Adam. Because in Adam, we all sinned. And we are spiritually the offspring of the devil. 1 John 3.10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. You know, in the Bible, debate today is all about race and we all talk about race and how important race is. You know, God only sees two races. He sees the children of God and the children of the devil. That's what he sees. And 1 John says, you can tell the difference. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. 
nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person, that's you, that's me. When we come into this world, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. The world does not understand what we as Christians seek to obey and uphold in his word. They don't get it. Why? Because it's spiritually discerned and they don't have the Spirit. They're not of the Spirit. What are they of? They're of Satan. That's the stark reality of the Bible. When we were lost, we were under his grip. He was leading us like a little child down this broad path, leading us to an ultimate trap. If we do not deviate from that path, we will stand at an ultimate destination before a holy God apart from the righteousness of Christ. What is the most terrifying place in the universe? It's not hell. It's to stand in judgment before God apart from the righteousness of Christ. And that is Satan's dream for all people. And that is what you were. And he says that this is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were sons of disobedience, children of disobedience. When you see that phrase, sons of dot, 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 that's a Hebraic expression. And it implies something. Jesus called James and John the sons of thunder. You might recall. Why did he call them that? Because they were always clamoring for position. They're always jockeying for power. We want to sit at your right hand. They're always trying to one-up one another. You're the sons of thunder. It wasn't a compliment. Barnabas, that name means a son of encouragement. And it implies that you're not just generally a nice person, that there is something innate in you that exudes encouragement. Uh, for you and I to be sons of disobedience, children of disobedience, we're not just occasionally disobedient. In it, we are disobedient right down to our chromosomes. It is who we are. And he said, this is who you were. And in verse 3, he says uh, that this spirit is a work in sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. What does that mean? That means it's a universal problem. This is not... Limited to the Ephesians. The Ephes- Who are the Ephesians? They're, they're Gentiles. They're Greeks. What is Paul? He's a Jew. He's a Jew by ethnic background. He's saying, we all have this problem. We all have lived in, among this spirit of disobedience. That's a big statement for a Jew like Paul to make. If there's another Jew there, uh, they might take offense at what he's saying there. Because remember, these, these Ephesians are Gentiles. What, what were they saved out of? If you read Acts, they were pagans, man. They were idolaters. They, they, they practiced witchcraft. They'd get saved. They'd go home. They'd burn their witchcraft books. They'd trash their idols. At least Jews are monotheistic. But Paul's saying, doesn't matter. Monotheistic, polytheistic, you reject Christ, you're a child of Satan. You're a son of disobedience. You are dead. You're following the course of this world. Path to destruction. He says, we were all in this boat. We cannot compare ourselves to anybody else. You, you do not look at others and say, well, at least I'm better than that guy. You see how tall this wall is here? It'd be cool if you could get a ladder and go all the way to the top and you had a Sharpie pen. And if you could do that and you would write the names of every person who ever lived on that wall from, from the best at the very top all the way down to the worst people who ever lived. It's this morally descending list. The best who ever lived, the dregs of humanity at the bottom. Who would go at the top of that list? Other than Jesus, of course, because he's divine. So among human beings, who would go at the top? You know, you might, some people might say the Apostle Paul. Some people might pick an Old Testament figure. Depending on your background, you might throw Mother Teresa out there, kind of popular, Billy Graham, somebody like that, you know. Who'd be at the bottom? Huh? What, what human being would be at the bottom of a list like that? When I ask that question, a lot of people go, Hitler. You know, because in America, we can't think back any further than World War II. <laughs> and Hitler's a pretty bad guy. I mean, other people throw in a, some serial killer, you know, a Jeffrey Dahmer, a Charlie Manson, somebody like that. Where would you go? Where would you place your own name on a list like that? Well, we generally think kind of highly of ourselves but we don't want to be braggadocious so we'd probably park our name somewhere in the middle a little above maybe a little above the middle I mean we'd acknowledge we'd have to say well I'm not Mother Teresa but I'm sure not Hitler you know 
Let me ask you a question. What is the standard for a list like that? Is it the ceiling? Nope, it's the sky. It's immeasurably high because the standard by which all people are going to be judged is Jesus Christ. Can you touch him with a million foot pole? Morally, no, you cannot. No one comes close. So really, what does it matter where you fall on that list? Because we've all fallen short. Romans says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so that list, every name on that list, we're in the same boat. You, me, Mother Teresa, and Hitler just rowing down the stream. And the boat's got a leak. And we need the standard bearer to reach down so we can take his hand. And you can't compare yourself. We like to rank each other. We like to outdo each other and say, well, you know, be pharisaical about it. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like, you know, so-and-so over here. Like those two guys that went hiking in the woods, they saw a grizzly bear, and one of them took off his backpack, took out some running shoes, started to lace them up. The other guy said, well, you fool, you can't outrun a bear. He's like, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just got to outrun you. (laughs) It doesn't work that way in eternity. Nobody gets out of these woods alive apart from Christ. And so Paul goes on, And he says that uh, after examining the world, the devil, now he goes to the third prong of that pitchfork that animates us. He says, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So you've got the world, you've got Satan. And now we see number three, we are slaves to our sin nature. We are slaves To our sin nature. That's what the flesh is. When he talks about the flesh, flesh refers to that unredeemed part of your nature. You are born and you are enveloped in this unredeemed sin nature. You are slave to it. Okay? Now here's the thing. If you're born again, you're saved, you still have the sin nature. All right? You still have it. It's just that you're not a slave to it anymore. Okay, now you got an alternative. You got a new nature in you. There's a dichotomy going on right now. You got an old nature and a new nature. What do we call the new nature? We call it the Holy Spirit. And He indwells you. And so you can live according to the Holy Spirit or you can live according to the flesh. But you don't have to live according to the flesh because you've got a power greater than the flesh. We just don't turn to it like we ought. But once upon a time, you were bound to that old nature. And Paul says, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so uh, we've got got this control animating us in our dead state, in our lostness, the world, the devil, and our own sin nature, our flesh— And as a result of all that, he says, we are children of wrath, which means, number four in your notes, we were destined for hell. That was our trajectory. We were destined for hell. We were under the wrath of God. Well, so much for the notion that the Old Testament features a God of wrath and the New Testament features a God of mercy. And those are two separate gods, wrath and mercy, Old Testament, New Testament. I don't know if you noticed this, but you're reading the New Testament We were under the wrath of God in our lostness, which means we were destined for help by the justice of God. People struggle with this. How can a God who is merciful and loving send people to hell? They wrestle with this. Well, let me me just get one thing straight. Nobody has to go to hell. Nobody has to go to hell. Even if you believe in election, and I do, you will not find a verse in there that says God has predestined people for hell and damnation. That is not a scriptural thing. And so nobody has to do that. People go to hell because they reject Jesus Christ. It is on them, all right? We are not innocent if we reject Christ. God created the world. When he created the world, it was perfect. How to get messed up? We did that. We did that, all right? But people wrestle with it. They say, well, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. That is not for you to decide because you're not the, you're not the one who created the standard. God created the standard. We're looking at this in human terms. 
We would all uh, accept the premise that if someone commits a crime, that there ought to be a punishment. We'd accept that premise, right? Like if somebody robs a bank, shoots somebody, maybe takes their life, you go to prison for that. We don't have a problem for that. Well, when, when a crime is committed against an eternal God, that's an eternal crime. And so what is offered in accordance with that is an eternal punishment. And so when an unrepentant sinner dies and they have died in their rejection of Christ, God in his character, he cannot compromise his holy character. And so there must be, there must be a punishment for that. And yet people struggle with that. They say, that's not fair. They say, how can a loving God send people to hell? I think that's the wrong question. I don't wrestle with that question nearly as much as I wrestle with why God in his holiness, in his justice, in his righteousness, would send his son down here his son who is perfect, whom he loves. And he would live a perfect life and in the course of that he would be surrounded by guilty people in this messed up place that God created perfect that we screwed up. And this, this God in the flesh would take abuse upon abuse and endure humiliation and go to a cross that was ours and be tortured for hours upon end and ultimately give his life for us, all the while crying out, forgive them. That's what I struggle with. And so I don't think the question we ought to be asking is, how could a loving God send people to hell? I think the question, the bigger question is, how does a holy God allow unrighteous people into heaven? That's the head scratcher for me. And so Paul has shown us the way we were. Now let's look at the way we are. You ready for some good news? <laughs> you're like oh dear lord please give me some good news I'm about to share with you the two most welcome words in all the New Testament he says in verse 4 but God come on after all that bad news everything that you were but God oh thank you lord but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Look at that. In two verses, we came from the wrath of God to the love and the mercy of God. Wow. His wrath, how can that be? How can he have his wrath on us and still love us? See, this is what we don't understand. Why? Because we're human and we think like humans. And we imagine that God operates like humans. See, you can't have wrath and love at the same time. God can, because he is a simple being. He is all of his attributes perfectly. God is wrath, God is justice, God is love, God is mercy, and he's all of them perfectly and simultaneously. And Paul says in verse five, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved and verse 6, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We've seen the way we were. So for the Christian, here's the way we are. In your notes, number one, we're alive and positioned with him. You're not dead. You're not a zombie. You're vibrant. You are thriving. You are alive. And more than that, you are placed in a position of royalty and privilege next to Jesus. And where is Jesus? He's at the right hand of God the Father even now. You are positioned there. Now, you don't feel like you are because physically you're sitting here at the Lamb's Chapel. You're like, I'm not in heaven right now. This is according to the sovereignty of God. Why does it speak of this as though it's past tense? Well, first of all, uh, God, God chose you, knew you in eternity past. He knew that you would come to him. Christ, scripture says, was slain before the foundation of the world. God does not operate in time. God operates in eternity. He sees it all at once. And so when he says that you are seated with him in the heavenlies, even though for you living in, in time, you have not yet experienced that, the, the point is that God's word is so sure that we can speak of it in the past tense because it's as good as done. His word is good. There's no chance that you will not be seated with him. 
That's for y'all who think you can lose your salvation. You're already seated with him in the heavenlies. He's not going to remove you from that position. He raised us. When Christ died, what did God do? He raised him and he seated him. When you died spiritually, uh, died to self, died to the flesh, you were placed in Christ, you were raised with Christ, and you will be seated with Christ. This is just more of the blessings that are cascading down upon us. And here's the why. Remember that question I asked that I struggled with? Why would a, a holy God, a just God, allow unrighteous sinners the opportunity to have an eternity in heaven and a position of righteousness? Why? Here's the reason why in verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is this saying? He wants to put us on display. He wants to show the immeasurable riches of his kindness. It is to present his work for the purpose of his glory. That is the reason God does anything. Ultimately, it is for his glory. Why does he want to redeem you? Why does he want to save you, raise you, take you to heaven? It's to demonstrate his, his majesty so that he can have glory. You are a trophy. You are a gorgeous, beautiful, prized possession in the, in the eternal trophy cabinet of God. And when people marvel at it, who's marveling at these trophies of grace? Well, Peter, in 1 Peter 1, he says it's the angels. They look at this. These are things that angels long to look into. They look at you, they marvel. They are just stupefied. They are blown away. They look at you and they see and they understand you are the greatest of God's creation. And then the enemy marred you, tempted you, caused you to fall, and now you are, you are a scarred, imperfect uh, facsimile of what God made. But then the Father steps in with his sovereignty and his righteousness, and through Jesus, he creates a way to restore you, to bring you back into the image into which you were made. And the angels are overwhelmed at that. They are so fascinated by that. But it's all for the glory of God. And people don't understand that. They're like, they don't get this whole glory thing. Why would God be so preoccupied with his own glory? Because in our humanness, you know what that sounds like to us? It sounds like pride. And that's wrong, right? Like if we, if we were to pursue glory for ourselves, that would be prideful. That would be wrong. Why is it wrong for me and not wrong for God? You're not God. You're not God. Here's the difference. He deserves the glory. You don't deserve the glory. You don't deserve it. The glory belongs to him. It's his glory. It's not your glory. It's certainly not Satan's glory. And that's how he got kicked out of heaven. He sought that glory. He said, I will be like the most high. I will ascend above the stars. God's like, no, you won't. Nope. You're gone. You're gone. Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, takes him to the highest mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, this I will give you if you will just bow down and worship me. It's what he wants more than anything. He wants the worship of God. Can you imagine? He clearly didn't understand what Jesus was when he did that. Here he is, he's offering him all the kingdoms. Jesus must have been like, you, you realize I made that. Like, that's already mine. You're offering me what is mine. And you're asking me to give you what is not yours. Right? What is worship? Worship, English word, comes from the old English, two words, uh, worth. I think it's spelled W-E-O-R-T-H in the old English, worth. Uh, and then the suffix, Skype. S-C-I-P-E, transliterated as ship or quality. And so worth-ship, literally, is what worship is. It's to ascribe the quality of worth to something. When we worship, as we did this morning, we were ascribing worth to God. Why? Because he is worthy. He alone is worthy. There is no one else that is worthy. And you come into this world, uh, the scarred creation of a good God and he makes you worthy. How does he do that? He does it 
by what we see in verse 8. For by grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith. One of the greatest verses in all the Bible. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works that no one may boast. Why is this why has this got to be through grace? Why has this got to be through grace? Because in your, in your notes here, first of all, I want to back up. I didn't give you number two. What are we? We're the objects of his glory, if you didn't catch that. But number three is we are recipients of a free gift. Why is it a gift? Because the only way that you can worship God in a manner that is pleasing to him is if he does a work in you. Because the only thing that pleases God is in accordance with God's standard. What's in accordance with God's standard? Only God. There's, there is nothing else. There is nothing that compares. So therefore, you can't please God on your own. And so he's got to redeem you by his power, by his grace. That's why it's a free gift. You don't do anything to obtain salvation. You are incapable. It can only be given by God. It is available to all. However, it's not automatic. Jesus didn't just die on a cross and suddenly everybody in creation is born again, saved. No. No, he paid the price. It is finished in terms of the payment of that price. But you receive that gift by faith. You say, well, is, isn't faith a work? I mean, don't I have to have, isn't that the condition? Therefore, is that an act? Is that a work? Isn't that something that I have to do in order to obtain salvation? Well, not according to Paul, because of the way that he words this. He says, this is not of your own doing. And so whatever faith is, it's not produced as a work. Think of it this way. How many of you are breathing? This means yes. All right. You're breathing. Have you been breathing all morning? Good. Are you thinking about it as you breathe? You're like, well, I am now, Pastor Scott. If you had to think about breathing every time you took a breath, that would complicate life, right? And I realize there are medical things that require some, you know, some work. It can be laborious depending on your medical condition. But in general, why do people breathe? They don't think about it. It's not something that they're conscious of. You breathe because of something external exerting pressure, air pressure on your lungs and it causes you to breathe as a reflex, as a believer. Faith is the breathing that comes as the prompting of a sovereign, saving grace impacts you from without. God grants us faith. He draws us by his spirit. Breathing is not something that we fully do on our own. It's just this unconscious thing. It's a result of, of, of air pressure from outside our lungs. Faith, believing, is something that we don't fully do on our own. God enables it. It's something that grace produces in us. Were grace not offered, you could not have faith. In, in, in that grace. And so here's the result. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. And so this is the last point. Number four. In your notes. We are divinely created instruments. We are the work of his hand. He creates a new thing. Out of us. By his grace. He's a creator. He makes new things. The word here. Workmanship is poema. We get our word poem from that. We're, God's an artist. And you and I are the artistic expression of this master artist. We're like a beautiful musical instrument that this divine craftsman has assembled. And then he picks it up and he plays it like the virtuoso that he is. The other day, my wife and my daughter, we walked into a Steinway dealership. We're kind of interested in maybe buying a piano. Uh, you know, I can't afford Steinway, all right. But they had a used piano in there that was the cheapest in the whole room. And it was not a Steinway, it was a different model. We didn't end up buying it because it's not, not a good time to afford something like that. But we wanted to peek, take a look. We walk in there. The salesman, I kind of questioned his sales method because the first piano he showed us was this $150,000 Steinway Grand Piano. 
And I told him, buddy, I don't know if you should show people that piano first because they're not going to want anything else and they can't afford that. So, but as we watched it, it was the most beautiful thing. And it was equipped with this, this player software. So where it played on its own and they had, they had linked it to video footage of some of the most famous pianists in all of history. And so there's footage of George Gershwin, old black and white footage, and he's playing the piano, and he was a virtuoso. And they have programmed this piano to utilize the exact same playing style, rhythm, pressure, sensitivity that George Gershwin employed on that exact song. And so as you're watching him on the screen, you are hearing him play on this beat. It's like you're listening to George Gershwin in person. And in case you're wondering, yes, I did request that they play a Billy Joel song as well. <laughs> and it was amazing. But what really made it amazing is this, this beautiful instrument. It was the most glorious piano I ever saw. Doesn't compare a lick to the instrument that God has created in you. You are worth so much more, not of yourselves, but because of what he has done. You are his workmanship. What does he say? Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Whoa, 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 wait, whoa. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast, free gift. But now we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Hey, so what does that mean? That means you are not saved by works. You are saved for works. But before we get down too far on that thought and accidentally slip back into a workspace mentality where maybe I didn't get saved by works, but I got to keep working to stay saved. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at that verse, verse 10. And I want you to personalize it. Instead of we, I want you to say you. Like God is speaking to you. And instead of uh, uh, his and Christ, I want you to replace that with me and my. And it reads like this. For you are my workmanship. Created in me for good works. Which I have prepared beforehand. That you should what? Go to work? Get busy? No. Walk in them. That's what you're doing. He prepared the works. You're his workmanship. You're the instrument. Where's the instrument? It's in the hands of the virtuoso. And the works that he's prepared, you don't do them on your own power. You walk in them. Just like you walked along the course of this world, now you are walking with a new identity that he gave you. It's not of yourselves. It is never of yourselves. This is still God accomplishing everything. He accomplished your salvation. He will accomplish the outworking of your faith to the end that you look more and more each day like Jesus Christ. My kids love playing with Legos. I grew up playing with Legos. I think it's the greatest toy ever invented. My only problem with Legos is at my house, they're everywhere. And if you step into one of my kids' rooms and you don't have shoes on, you will cuss, like you will. <laughs> but here's the cool thing. When you get a box of Legos, you see the picture on the front. You know, the castle or the spaceship or whatever it is. And then you open the box. Is that picture, is what you see on the picture, is that in the box? Well, now wait, it, it is, but it doesn't look like that yet. What do you got to do? To get it to look like that, you got to put it together. God is putting you together. He is assembling you. He is crafting you. He is the master builder, and he is at work in your life. Just as Satan was once at work in your life, now there's a new spirit at work in your life. And his job, his goal, his dream is this beautiful process of sanctification whereby you are made into a Reasonable facsimile of Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is who we are and who we will be forever. Would you bow with me?
as our prayer team comes down. There may be some of you here today who say, I relate to the first part of this sermon. When Pastor Scott described or Paul described what we were, that is who I am right now. It doesn't have to be indefinitely. And I'd like to invite you right now where you are to make a decision so that you can become what God says he wants of you. And so with every head bowed, every eye closed, if this describes you as someone who is lost, someone who is spiritually dead, someone who has no hope in and of themselves, if that's you today, you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior with no one looking, I want to give you an opportunity to make a decision right now. And in your heart, where you are, don't tarry another second. You can pray along with me in this moment along these lines. It's not these words that are going to do anything. It's the sentiment of your heart. It's the surrender of your life. You just pray, Lord, God, I recognize that I am a sinner. I am am spiritually dead. And I also recognize that what you did through Jesus is you paid the price that I could not. And I understand that I can't do anything to earn your favor, to earn heaven. But I am trusting in what Jesus did for my eternity. And I receive that now as a free gift because I want to follow you. I want to be who you want me to be. That I may know you and that I may spend eternity with you, with nobody looking, if you've prayed that prayer today for the first time and you met it in your heart, I just want you to slip your hand up right now. Is that you here today? Amen. Amen. If you've made that decision today, as soon as we pray here, I'm going to invite you to come down to speak to one of our prayer team and we want to come alongside you. We want to get you started on the greatest adventure of your life. It's an adventure that will last for eternity. You've just made the most important decision you could ever possibly make. And if it's a decision worth making, it's a decision worth sharing with someone. So please come down so that we can help you with next steps in this amazing journey. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon everybody in this room. Go with them. Give them a sense of understanding of who it is that you have called them to be, that you have made them, Lord. Give them victory each and every day and a knowledge that they serve the King of Kings. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you all.